Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I emphasize encourage community because I believe that we human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We like to cooperate. We like to collaborate with one another. In fact, we like hanging out with one another. Look how we live. We like eating in groups. We like going to ball games in groups, knitting circles in groups, reading circles. You name it. Human beings are doing it together. That's how we like to be. And most often in small groups, but sometimes in large ones, such as football games and baseball games. At the very same time, while the vast majority of us are friendly tribal animals, there are a small percentage of us who are extremely different. This small percentage are avaricious, greedy, they are predators, and they prefer to dominate rather than collaborate. These are the people who become dictators and tyrants on our planet. It's our job as the vast majority way into the high 90s, we are a percentage of all people. It is our job to stay aware, continue to be loving and friendly with one another, but to be ever aware of the predators who would dominate us. Because if they could take control, as they have in many countries on our planet, they would prefer that we become subjects rather than citizens. And I remind you, that that was what our American Revolution was all about. We changed from being subjects of King George of England, and we became citizens of the United States of America. We must stay aware. In the words of my hero, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of having as my guest Martin Weinstein. He is the founder of Open Earth, and we are going to find out a lot more about Open Earth. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Martin. Thank you so much, Richard. What a great, what a great start. What a pleasure to be here. Let's start at the top. Take it from the top. Open Earth, you founded it. Give us a description. What is it? Yeah, it, and I'll talk a little bit about what the story that that um, that led to it. Uh, Good. But in essence, um, Open, the Open Earth Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the research, design, and building of digital public infrastructure and innovations that can help augment humans' capacity to manage the resilience of our planet. And collaboration, as you started mentioning, is at the heart of it. And one of the reasons is because individually, we have a big impact in our surroundings, but we've become such a macro, macro civilization that has a massive impact into the entire Earth system that we all share. And in some sense, over the next decades, we're really facing an existential crisis, uh, being able to balance a safe uh, temperature in our, in our planet, addressing climate change, uh, preventing the 
erosion of biosphere integrity, particularly through the demise of, of biodiversity and species, and so many other natural resources that we are overexploiting. Um, I was originally um, formed or studied astrobiology. I'm originally from Argentina, but I studied in California. And astrobiology for me was very powerful because it, it illustrated how microorganisms that we can't see affected the whole uh, planet by producing oxygen, absorbing CO2. And over billions of years, this planet really created its own living body. And what we understand today as Gaia, as a planetary living system, even though it's taken billions of years to form and create stability over the last 60 years, we've significantly eroded that balance. And it is a fascinating time to be alive and to see, to have to go deep internally um, and collaboratively to review what the position that we want to have in our planet. And through the process, and I've uh, done different uh, work as a serial social entrepreneur and did my PhD on the transformation of the energy system, um, I understood digital technology, which is something that I wasn't originally uh, part of or, or followed very closely as something that could be a connective uh, tissue or mesh that can help us um, look at the same planetary system, deal with um, having trust on the information about our planet and bringing a level of coordination in our efforts to really be able to shift the tide in the short time frame. The issue that we find is what we describe as fragmentation, and it's the opposite of collaboration. There's a lot of fragmentation in our efforts to deal with climate change and biodiversity. Um, and one of the most important things that I think you tacitly allude to, Richard, is in, in, the, in this sort of um, almost battle to turn the tide towards having a sustainable um, reality in our planet, we are faced to uh, the paradigm of our relationship with our planet and our relationship with nature. And we've fallen into the illusion that we're separate from it. So up, upon this, what has been interesting in this journey is not only how to create the levels of innovation at the planetary scale, but also the revisions that it requires us to do as individuals to understand ourselves as an extension of our planet. And so in Open Earth Foundation, we do a lot of research and we do a lot of design of, of systems, um, trying to think as holistically as we can. And we also um, collaborate very closely with uh, government and supranational organizations, the United Nations on climate change, um, multilateral development banks, and also help them understand the importance of, of, of open source digital technology and how to empower um governments and stakeholders to have better tools to deal with the the changing uh, situations uh, around facing a, a warmed up planet, but also having to deal with our emissions and our mitigations. Surprisingly, even though we think very holistically, a lot of our work deals with accounting, accounting emissions and mitigations and creating a common sort of like trust data layer for our planet. I'll pause there, but I think that summarizes a bit of uh, at a high level, what we do, or esoterically what we do, and how I think it connects to the importance of the mind, body, and spirit equation. From my perspective, Martin, there is a planetary conflict that's going on between two ideologies. 
On the one hand, we have what I call the social Darwinists. And the social Darwinists think in terms of a winner-takes-all situation. That's their model. And they are the ones who prefer dictatorships. They are the ones who think that the people who are the wealthiest are meant to be the wealthiest, and the people who are the poorest are meant to be poor because that's social Darwinism, and it's a kind of survival of the fittest as applied to money, a survival of the fittest as applied to power, survival of the fittest as applied to domination. They believe that certain people are meant to rule and other people are meant to follow. And those people are not necessarily, as a group, accepting of such things as climate change. I don't know if they even care about climate change because they're much more wrapped up in what they can get for themselves in the here and now than what's going to come later. The second group that the social Darwinists, in my view, are in conflict with are what I call the humanists. The humanists believe that we're all in this together and that there's enough to go around so that everybody has food, shelter, water, education, and health care. And these are two very different ideologies. The social Darwinists would call the humanists socialists, as if it's a bad word, or communists, uh, if it's an even word, other word, because the social Darwinists want their way. The humanists want their way also. And what you're talking about in terms of saving the planet from our own extraction that we've been doing is falls much more into the humanist camp. That doesn't mean people don't go both directions or everything is black and white the way I've posed it. But for, for simplicity's sake, those are the two perspectives. And if I'm correct that it's mostly the people who care about other people and see us that, are, that we're all in this together, who are also caring about the planet, then the question becomes for you that I ask, it's hard enough to deal with the people who believe that climate change is going on. It's, it's hard enough to get them organized. It's hard enough to organize the people who understand that we're really losing the ocean because we're killing everything that lives in the ocean, as I've been educated by the brilliant Sylvia Earle, our, our oceanographer. It's hard enough to do that. How do you deal with the significant percentage of the population that reject the whole concept. They're climate change deniers. They're, they're, they're food abundancy deniers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a highly challenging one. I would say, first, um, we, we often fall under the impression that the debate is out about climate change and that 50% people believe in it and 50% don't. That's not really the case. Most people believe in climate change. Most people understand it's real. The problem is a high degree of uh, either indifference or them we don't know what to do with it. At the individual level, this is such a massive thing that we don't know where to start. Um, and we all believe in climate change, but want our comfort, right? The small amount that doesn't actually has um, an ability to coordinate uh, their response, sometimes in a more effective way. And so one is the challenge, like you point out, of uh, addressing that uh, other group, which you call the social Darwinist, 
that are well-organized, disconnected with, um, with a fundamental reality of, of our balance on earth, I would say, um, and also um, provide the tools for the, the group that does, which is the majority, to have effective responses. One of the things there that I think is key, particularly when we deal with climate skepticism, is empower those that do believe it to stop and right then and there, whoever is skeptic, with um, very powerful truths um, so that there's constantly a level of um, peer pressure or peer knowledge sharing and educating. And, and then the other aspect, which is challenging, is how do you deal with the other group in a, in a non-confrontational way? from a place of love that's the hardest one because if you respond to them in anger and indignation they probably shut off and say you're a lunatic and you believe in climate change so how do we how do we do it from a place of inviting them to see a different perspective to helping them almost augment their awareness of how deeply interconnected we are with the planet how delicate to some extent the planet is um and that might be an interesting sort of counter question on how do we raise that level of um, individual, uh, collective, planetary, and spiritual awareness. I, um, I hope there often that when there are the constant shocks that we have from climate change, it creates opportunities for people to rethink their position. And, um, and, I, and I, I would say that whilst I'm giving my best shot at your question this is a fundamental challenge but it's yes. almost possible that we address the problem by creating the level of coordination of those that understand that obviously our environmental challenges are real and uh, urgent uh, and getting them to coordinate without having to worry with this well-organized minority that makes noise and sometimes delays things but the majority, if they're well organized, can um, can make the difference. So, I actually personally, and I think from Open Earth, focus more on empowering the humanist, as you frame it. Well, then let me ask you this: I'm a clinical psychologist, so I work very much at the micro level, right? I work with one person or two people, a couple, or maybe a family. It's very micro. But you're working both on the micro and on the macro, as you point out, because climate change is a macro issue. If people are listening to you, Martin, and they're, they're investigating open earth and what you do, and they live in Iowa, and they're saying, you know, this guy makes some sense. I, I, I agree that the climate change is going on. And there are these huge forces that are taking, ruining the, 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 the forests, taking stuff out of the ground, making the, the planet into a dry pizza. I, I understand that. But what can I, if the person could communicate with Martin directly, he would say to you or she would say to you, what can I do on a daily basis or a weekly basis to contribute? What do you say to that person? Yeah, it's a great and super important uh, question, and we have to almost ask ourselves that question every day, right? That's sort of what the what the challenge uh, puts in front of us. The first thing would be to educate, to learn more, to be curious, uh, to want to know more, because that also helps in our level of, of awareness of of the type of problem and what produces the problem. 
By doing that, we are able to look at our patterns and understand where we are contributing to the problem. So that goes to realization of our direct or indirect fossil fuel consumptions in our homes, in our cars, in our diet, of foreign trips. Um, and and that already, being able to visualize that is a big part of it and, 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 and making that individual to collective connection. The electricity that I consume in my house in my, if my state is powered by coal and gas, then I am contributing to that. So I can cons- consider um, alternative renewable energies. I can consider better insulating my house so that warming it up or cooling it down is an efficient process. I can consider eating less uh, meat because it has a also large carbon footprint. Not advocating that everyone should be vegetarian, although that would be very good for the planet. But um, understanding the impact of diet with um, environmental impacts, um, take less international trips if needed, jump on a Zoom call. Uh, If you're able to um, purchase an electric vehicle, then you might be contributing to the uh, clean electrification process. If you can, uh, if you are a person that are active in politics, you can. Look at your representatives and and nudge them to uh, to adopt policies that really consider this. Um, and one of the most powerful things we could do as well is we'll try not to highly overpopulate the planet. So actually, our our family size um, can play a key role. But educating our our next generation and empowering the next generation to be very very well educated on environmental issues makes a big difference because you have a level of uh, generational tensions in the different views of of how environment uh, plays a role, but that can change very much in, in future generations. And we see that a lot of um, younger generations, by default, understand that we have massive global environmental problems. I think they intuitively uh, bring. So that those are some ideas, some suggestions um, that could be added. And of course, if you have a job. You can also nudge your employer to also consider climate change within its policies. Martin, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, I agree with a great deal, if not all of what Martin is saying to me, but is there a place that I could go to or that Martin could refer me to where I could find a list that would be the title of the list would say 50 things you can do to contribute towards the climate change problem or a hundred things you can do around the house or broken down. Uh, here's what you can do around the house. Here's what you can do around traveling. Here's what you can do around your nutritional plan. Here's what you can do with the workspace. Here's, in other words, a how-to. Is there a, a recipe book? Because yeah. the things that you're saying make sense, but they're, you're giving, you know, you're of course in an interview giving us headlines and I'm now wanting to drill deeper right. so that the people listening might actually be able to get some kind of a handbook yeah. or something that they could follow with a checklist. This is a great point. And I literally, as you were talking, uh, wrote in Google 50 things uh, to do about uh, climate change. And a great article shows up that literally says 50 ways to reduce climate change. And it starts, uh, 
what shows up is nadiacolborn.com. It starts with eat more plant-based food, less meat, limit airplane travel, clear the amount you drive, shift away from fossil fuel in your home. So it just Okay, those the, are the tip those are the same. typical ones yeah. that you listed yourself without right. even reading it. Drop down to number twenty six and let me let's see what it gets when you get further down into the That's into right. the details. Yeah, because fifty is a big is a big list, right? Um yes. and often we think about ten things, right? People are too impatient. Uh, I'll take you up on that. So, uh, in this article, and I, uh, I am seeing it for the first time, uh, number 26 is get involved with local organizations that are working to make your town community more climate friendly, which I kind of alluded to already, like your representative. Right. Uh, and then right. the, the number 27 is help make your workplace net zero, which is what I was, I was saying. Um, there's a lot of things we can do, but it also, you know, the longer the list, it could also be a little bit daunting, you know, Richard, because it's like, I, I have to do all of this. Can I just start with one thing? And there's a lot of people that think about that, right? What is the one thing I can do rather than 50? Um, so I think that those are all very important things. And, and it was also why my first suggestion was educate, right? Ask questions, be curious. What can I do? What could my neighbor do? What could my family do? What could my school, my my workplace do? Um, and that curiosity has to spark my concern from, from not being indifferent to the macro problem. Um, so I want to get back to the list for a second before you move on, because I'm a very I'm a I'm a classic American pragmatist. I, I studied classic American pragmatism and, and philosophy in college. I, I resonated to it, and so I'm practical. I want to know how to get a job done. I'm already picturing some kind of a chart that you put on your refrigerator, mm-hmm. and it's got t- ten sections on it. One has to, do, and it's all about reducing carbon footprint and helping the climate change situation. So I'd have one box on the chart, what can I do nutritionally? One box on the chart, what can I do around the mm-hmm. house? One box on the chart, what can I do when I travel? Yeah. You know, some e- easy reference that I just walk by every day, and I sort of, after a while, by looking at that chart over and over again, it becomes part of me. So I n- eventually no longer need the chart because I've assimilated the various things that I need to do, but it might take a while to assimilate the chart. Right. But because I want to know what I can do to be part of this movement that Weinstein is leading, hmm. right? I, I need details. Hmm. A lot of people need those details. So yeah. that that's, I just wanted to say that, that, that. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's also creating that mental, uh, mental space and mental framework for us that's so important and now that i'm reading this article which you've inspired me to search is fascinating and it's organized by the first sector which is like category as you were sort of alluding to is mindset communication and education and the second point that we can do on climate change says pay attention to your feelings which is something that i hadn't seen before express what you feel get it yeah. Getting into my field. That's <laughs> that's right. right. If you're upset rather than shut down, grieve, express what you feel. And I, I did mention that for a lot of people, and um, uh, this is not what directly open earth is, but I obviously engage with a lot of next generation uh, that um, that are very uh, almost depressed about climate change because they don't know what to do about it. So uh, feelings are very important. Then it says... Um, well, educate yourself, speak out, talk to your friends and family. So that's the category of mindset and communication. Then there's the category of 
political engagement, organization, and community action. Uh, one category around follow the money or pressure industry. Stop buying from the biggest polluters. Call or write companies that big polluters and tell them what you think of their policies. Um, change your credit card and bank to banks that are not investing in fossil fuel industry. If you have investments, switch your investments to green investments. Um, then there's more a category on personal and household carbon footprint. This is a great list. I'm going to have to write this person and say this is a great, great. Uh, what's yeah? What's the name of the list? If people want to listen to, to hear us, Martin, and they want to Google it. So because uh, I've I've never heard of like 50 ways to reduce climate change, but you brought it up. So I Googled that and Nadia, uh, Nadia Colburn.com, 50 ways to reduce climate change, a different kind of list showed up. And I think it's really good. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Now, getting back to your uh, foundation, Open Earth, which is a nonprofit, I heard that. Um, Tell us about some of the programs within it. And I'm going to ask you specifically, Mm -hmm. what does open solar Mm -hmm. mean? Yeah, so Open Earth is first organized around programs, and our programs are climate, oceans, cities, energy. And there's another program that's more like Earth broadly. And each program incubates different projects. Those projects, in our case, are normally the development of open source digital platforms. Open Solar is a project that started uh, actually back when I was uh, leading the Open Innovation Lab at Yale University and uh, also collaborating at the MIT Media Lab. And it happened right after Hurricane Maria took down the grid of Puerto Rico. This was in 2017, 2018. Um, and, and Puerto Rico went dark. And my work in, throughout my PhD was around uh, peer-to-peer, uh, I called it the power of sharing for sharing power. So how do we think about our houses and our buildings to be smart and and, and share uh, solar power um, batteries and shift uh, shift a consumption or production based on when there's wind or when there's solar uh, or availability and in the case of Puerto Rico what we realized that would before proposing what we proposed which is community solar microgrids uh, ways in which um, schools become like the anchor point for the community around them to have um, solar sharing uh, systems to finance solar power at the community scale first. So we developed a platform and deployed a prototype so that anyone around the world uh, or the United States could invest by providing capital that is then used to finance solar uh, systems in, uh, in this case, Puerto Rican homes. So that uh, the people from Puerto Rico, as they are paying for their electricity, their solar electricity, they become owners. So what's called pay-to-own model. And in Puerto Rico, this is particularly relevant because it's one of the most costliest electricity tariffs in all of the United States. And I know that this is mind, body, health, and politics, but it is because of a policy that this happens. Puerto Rico and Hawaii are bounded by what's called the Jones Act. And in the Jones Act, these islands have to buy, particularly Puerto Rico, has to buy fossil fuels from mainland United States. Cannot buy from somewhere else. It has to pay United States. And so you can imagine that bringing all type of fossil fuels from mainland United States into Puerto Rico and then burn them to produce electricity creates a large amount of fuel tax 
So they pay almost 45 cents a kilowatt hour. In California, where I'm from, I think we pay around 13 to 14 cents. It's a huge difference. So the, the more expensive the electricity tariff is, the, the faster we can repay our solar system. So how do we turn the Jones Act in the benefit for having community-owned solar infrastructure so that the next hurricane that comes, they don't run out of everything, right? Particularly first responders, for example. So that's open solar. Um, and I could talk a little bit about some of the art of their projects. Climate is probably 50 to 70% of our work. Um, one of our main projects there is called Open Climate. And it is about um, the aggregation and interoperability of climate data, particularly emissions and mitigations, by um, almost all stakeholders in the context of the Paris Agreement, which is the primary policy instrument uh, that is managed by United Nations Climate Change. The Paris Agreement stipulates that we have agreed to make efforts to prevent warming below 2 degrees with efforts uh, below 1.5 degree warming. We're almost close to 1 degree warming. And embedded into it is a accounting and accountability process. This year, particularly 2023, the first global stock take will happen. And it's where we come together as a, a community and say, what did you say you were going to do about climate change? Which in the case of countries that are called the nationally determined contributions, what are you doing and what should you do uh, to do your fair share? So that accountability process happens at the national level. We've been collecting a lot of the data and creating open digital infrastructure. So that also happens at the subnational level, at the city, at the corporate and at the individual level by something that we called nested climate accounting. It's a very interesting thing that also I think was shaped by the way that I uh, learned through astrobiology is that at the individual level, the individual level is nested in the collective and the global level. So we need to make those nested hierarchies explicit. So my emissions and my house in Los Angeles contributes to the carbon footprint of um, my town inside or my neighborhood inside the city of LA inside uh, the greater Southern California grid, inside California, inside United States, inside planet Earth. So wherever I am in the world, whether I'm an individual or a corporation, I am connected to this nested accounting level at the global level. Um, so that's one of the key aspects of open climate. Uh, you mentioned Sylvia Earle. What a fascinating uh, ocean conservation leader. Uh, I've had the chance of seeing her a couple of times because we also have our ocean program. And in the ocean program, our focus is how do we create financial innovation uh, of new financial instruments to help governance support the cost of their marine protected areas. Uh, and Sylvia Earls probably has been diving in almost all marine protected areas um, and is a big advocate for that. Um, so what we realize when working with government is, and we've particularly been collaborating with the government of Costa Rica around a marine protected area called the uh, Cocos Island, which, again, Sylvia Earle has been there many times. Um, they they have a hard time financing that um, because you have to chase down illegal fishing. You have to have a fleet of, of, of uh, boats. You have to have cutting-edge uh, uh, satellite imagery to detect intruders. You have to do restoration work in the oceans. And for some countries like United States or Canada or other um, more industrial countries, it might be more feasible to have those budgets, particularly the ones in what we call the global south. This is harder. 
So that's one of the areas that we focus a little bit on, on, on oceans. We, in general, as an organization, try to apply systems thinking to identify leverage points, something that we can work on because we're a small, young organization that makes a big impact. We try to find those opportunities. One of the things that Sylvia told me, Martin, is that there's no place on the planet right now where you can find fish that aren't being affected by the plastic that's being thrown over the side by the industrial fishing uh, boats. And so Jolie and I stopped eating fish because we don't want to eat plastic and we don't want to contribute to that. And then, of course, we saw the movie that she was in about the deforestation. Now, I've known about deforestation for a long time, but I made the mistaken assumption that deforestation was going on in order to build cities. And what I learned was that deforestation is going on in order to create more agricultural land, in order to grow more crops, in order to feed cows, because we've taught ourselves to eat cow meat and everybody is hooked on it. So on the individual level, we've stopped eating cow meat in order to make a small contribution towards that. And these, I'm, I'm giving you examples yeah. of little mini, little mini micro ways that we personally have joined in and trying to contribute. And I think those microwaves, little waves that we're making within our nest, evidently, if we can get millions of people, many millions of people on board, then we'll make bigger waves, won't we? Exactly, exactly. And that's why um, also understanding and making that connection, which is probably the visualization of how your diet is down the supply chain or upstream the supply chain creating deforestation somewhere or maybe contributing to it is a huge important because once you start seeing once you start realizing um you have suddenly the will to change your diet because it's uncomfortable to change your diet we're used to it some people eat meat every day i'm from argentina it was raised it's a social practice to eat an asado a barbecue um so it, it is a, it's a large shift, but it can only happen when we realize those connections. And it's absolutely true. Um, uh, my wife and I spend a lot of time in Costa Rica because her family is also partly from there. And we still see a lot of source of deforestation, even in such an ecologically annihilated country um, where you have open fields with cows um, where they used to be rainforests. So when you see that Borneo is another example, uh, but mostly because of palm oil. Uh, and Sylvia's totally right. The ocean is um, totally compromised. And, you know, that's one of the things about um, awareness uh, in education that's so important around this. People look at the ocean and they don't see devastation. Whereas if you see uh, a deforested rainforest, you clearly can see that devastation. But in ocean, we just see blue to the horizon. But underwater, that's where a lot of the impact happens. And because the ocean is deeply interconnected, it's almost like a single body of, of interconnected water, uh, everything's connected. And then what, what happens in one area of the world affects the other, just like our atmosphere. No matter where you are on the planet, you're affecting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, Martin, I find myself wondering how you keep yourself from getting overwhelmed. The job that you're doing is so monumental, and there's so much conflict and it is so difficult i just wonder how you do it i tip my hat if i had one on to tip to you for the size of the job when i think 
that 60% of America right now are on the edge financially, that the social Darwinists are winning in this country, that the people at the top are sucking up all the money financially. So these people, the 60% who are struggling, how can they listen to what you and I are saying and be part of it when they're just struggling to just put some heat in the house and put any kind of food on the table? And they're listening to these two intellectuals talk about don't eat meat, and they're saying to themselves, are they kidding? How the hell are we going to feed our kids? The cheapest thing in the supermarket that gives some protein for our kids is three ninety nine hamburger, and they're telling us not to do it. Wow. I mean, th- th- that's just a little bit of the size of the job, right? Absolutely. Two billion, two billion people on the planet don't have clean drinking water, and we're going to try to say to them, be careful about your carbon footprint. <laughs> they're looking at, are you kidding? What kind of footprint are you talking about? So how do you keep yourself positive? How do you keep yourself moving forward with this huge job that you have that is so important to saving the planet? I mean, you know that it's important what you're doing. There's no question about that. You know it's about saving the planet. And yet I'm pointing out some of the adversarial aspects of what you have. Tell us on a personal level how you deal with it. It's a great question. And I think that it's relevant for myself, but so many other people, because as I, as I mentioned, I think um, uh, climate depression is almost uh, advancing to a lot of people because they don't, they don't, they're overwhelmed by the problem. I think there's a couple of things that, that helped me in the process. First, um, I try to remind myself that um, it's not exactly saving the planet because the planet will probably survive and do well. If we can extrapolate to the next, doesn't matter how much demise we do to the planet, 10 million years from now, uh, most likely the planet will bounce back. It is part of its nature. It's learned that over billions of years. And I trust that. All right. I trust the the resilient capacity of the planet. Yeah. What, um, then there's the second angle, which is, well, but this is affects humans. And I, I'm sensitive to that. Um, but the third thing that I often think about with that is, well, but what, what I'm particularly sensitive to is how this affects, um, uh, other forms of life form that don't vote, that don't express themselves in language the way that we do and can't. Um, and so, I try to empathize a bit with uh, the role of the rest of biodiversity, the rest of nature. Um, so one first thing is to have hope to the fact that, um, that yes, shock and, and terrible environmental collapse is very likely to happen, but the planet has a capacity to bounce back. The second is that I'm not alone, right? Uh, it cannot be that because it's also easy to fall into the savior complex. I have to save the planet. And I have to do it alone in my crusade. Um, we have to do it together. And that's that's one of the key premises. We have to collaborate. And you started talking about collaboration. I often say, Richard, collaboration is the ultimate technology that we are yet to master as a civilization. Um, because so much of it is driven by competition, innovation, corporation, even, our, even in our corporate legal structures, it's there in how we're, our, our upbringing. Um, and collaboration introduces a change of mindset that we are part of a global self and we can collaborate because 
in caring about that bigger self, we are also caring about our individual self. Um, then there's, a, so the second part is looking at we're not alone and I can collaborate. And um, the third part I would say is other things that help in the process. Meditation. I am a very avid board sport. Um, um, I practice surf. I practice snowboarding. I practice kite surfing. Everything that's like in nature and playing. It's a great way to keep myself uh, active and energized. Um, and then the fourth one is actually turning it into humor. I say, what a fascinating time to be alive that in a single generation, we have to turn around an existential crisis for the only planet that we know that carries life, scientifically, at least. Um, and so that's a great challenge. Uh, being able to see the optimism and the humor of it actually um, makes it part of, of the process. But you're absolutely right. Um, those that are looking which from a very different perspective can look at our tips and say, well, this is very disconnected, which is why a lot of the solutions have to think systemically. What are the paradigm shifts that have to happen in our society? And lately in our organization, Open Earth, we've been working on changing the paradigm of economic thinking, even our monetary thinking. When we met originally in Wilbur, we were discussing what could the future of money look like if money was backed by the health of nature? And if you destroy nature, your money will system will collapse. If you use the currency to invest and to regenerate and to restore and protect nature, then you will have a thriving economy and monetary system. And we just published internally for peer reviewers this weekend a report on nature-based currencies and how natural capital can play a role in advanced monetary systems. Because we have to think out of the box. Uh, how do we revisit so many things that we take for granted in our, our human system? If our audience wants to read that paper on nature-based currency, is it available yet, or when will it be available, Martin? It will be available soon. My suggestion is go to openearth.org and sign up for a newsletter, because as soon as we publish um, the open documents, uh, we share it to our network. Um, and if you happen to be on our website, get more involved, learn about some of the things that we're doing. And of course, in the top right button, there's a nice button that says donate to support our organization, which is a 501c3. I hope you all hear that. Open Earth. Open Earth. Go to Google, get into it, find out more about it, and participate in it. That would be really wonderful. And I love what you said about the importance of humor, because in the final analysis, if we can't laugh and laugh at ourselves, <laughs> we've got even bigger problems, of course. Sure. Uh, something else I want to bring out uh, today, Martin, is that you're coming from a place of wanting to do good and wanting to tell truth as you know it. The social Darwinists, a very high percentage of them are climate deniers. They don't play by the same rules. They don't believe that telling the truth is necessarily important. In fact, they're happy to make up lies and publish them. We call it disinformation. Certain groups within that group are willing to kill or let die millions, if not tens of millions of people. We've seen that with Mao. We've seen that with Hitler. We've seen that possibly with Putin. They don't really care about lives. I mean, people ask me, they say, 
How is Putin eventually going to afford this war with Ukraine? If we keep giving the Ukraine uh, uh, ammunition and, and, and armament, uh, you know, uh, Russia will, you know, it will be drained dry of money. It's total nonsense. What people aren't realizing is that those social Darwinists such as Putin, what he's thinking is, I lose a few hundred thousand men. I spend several billions or more dollars. Nothing compared to what I'll gain when I own the entire country of the Ukraine. I will have the entire gross domestic product of a country in my bank account. So that's how he's looking at it. What's he going to gain by owning a country versus a few 10,000 or 100,000 or a few hundred thousand deaths? These are the people that are other on the other side of what you're doing with climate change. And that makes it extremely more difficult because the, the game is stacked. They will play by any rule they care about or make up at the time, such as what Trump does. He gets called lying. He accuses the person who's accusing him of lying of lying. He gets caught stealing. He accuses somebody else of stealing. He doesn't care about what lies he makes up at the spur of the moment. has no meaning. But to people like you and, and Open Earth and myself, the humanists, we care a lot about lying. We, we believe that truth is important and that if we don't have truth, it's mind-bending because everybody is in chaos. You're also dealing with this phenomenon that I'm bringing out. Yeah. No rules, no rules versus rules. It really puts the people who play by the rules at a tremendous disadvantage. It would be like going into the ring boxing and one guy is allowed to kick and hit below the belt and the other one can only punch and punch above the belt. Yeah, this is, I mean, you're, you're raising uh, some of the largest challenges because in some sense you describe it's like trying to go to a battle with your pencil and your uh, colored uh, pains to do art. And on the other side, there's machine guns. <laughs> so you are <laughs> well said. Exactly. Um, well I, said. I, One... Like you should just avoid that situation. Start from, from the get go. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and yes, that, the, I think that one is one has to be very, very strategic and try to transcend pure naiveness and operate at two scales. One um, is at the um, at, at the scale of also operating from a place of, of love and union, where you don't see the other one as a as an enemy that needs to be destroyed and, and and killed because you are falling into their game, right? How do you how do you not fall into the game that they make you want to play? Um, and and second, um, yeah, think about what is an alternative system. The system is taking me here. What is what is a what is a different model where I can then invite the old system to participate? But of course, for someone like Ukraine, that is a very that's not feasible. What I'm hopeful at, and particularly we know that from some system dynamics, is that the state to the to the explanation is that Russia is playing a finite game. That once they take Ukraine, they finish their game is done, game over. Ukraine is not playing a finite game. You, Ukraine is playing an infinite game, and it's the game of survival. So they cannot, they cannot give up that easily, because it's their own existence. I know that Russia has a little bit of that concept as well, but it's not embedded into all of it. And so um, something similar happened in the U.S. Vietnam War as well, 
um, they're diff- playing very different games. And normally, if we play the infinite game, uh, which is the game of life in some sense, because you're not done with it, where you finished. I mean, yeah, of course we die, but 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 it's not something that that's our goal. Um, that hopefully that generates different dynamics um, in favor of of someone that's that's playing a, a more long term. Uh, role, but uh, it's I, I cannot say that we live in an easy planet in an easy world. It's hard, and changing things is uh, when we look at things it seems daunting, um, but it's doable. And I think it happens by by trusting that our individual changes and our awakening and further connection to uh, our broader and higher self actually is also part of what sparks. Uh, and inspires others to follow in the same layer of process, and and a critical mass can be created to change the tides. And so that level of optimism is also needed, um, because sooner or later we will realize that we are all in this together. Right? Doesn't matter which country you're in. There's one planet. Mars is a shitty planet to live in. Uh, it's it, this. This is this is what we have here, and there's an unprecedented opportunity for for radical unity. And I, I am hopeful that sooner or later our planet will teach that to us um, and we'll grow up as a civilization. Beautifully said. Beautifully said, Martin. Personal question. What brought you from Argentina to uh, live in the United States? Um, I was extremely curious. There was a lot of things that I wanted to do. And so I had a hard time when I was 17, 18 years old to, have to decide what I wanted to do. Um, and some of the prospects being in Argentina was like, well, I a lawyer or an economist or an architect uh, um, and college allowed us college allowed to a couple of years of taking electives and liberal art education and, and allow myself to navigate to where uh, that would take me. And, and it so did uh, with my uh, first class in astrobiology that sort of uh, changed my mindset and got me a lot more involved in science and holistic and big picture thinking. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I, I actually, after college, went back to Argentina, started a social enterprise there. And then I did my PhD in Australia. I've been moving around along. Uh, and I think that in the last, uh, process, it was apparent to me that I was not working as a national citizen. I was working as a planetary citizen. Um, and even though I'm, I am definitely very Argentinian, very proud and happy right now that Argentina won the soccer world cup as you might have heard, which is a big deal for us. Um, I, I am, I am still an earth citizen and that that's my ultimate uh, priority and, and alignment and identification. Your English is perfect with no accent whatsoever. Did you grow up bilingual? Gracias. Um, no, I, I mean, I grew up, my uh, family spoke Spanish, but I went to a bilingual school uh, but I think it's also picking up uh, accents and, and adapting to the surroundings of uh, what you listen and how you repeat. Uh, so I think I've spent enough time in, in California that I've absorbed a little bit more of a, a California <laughs> um, accent. The last person I met who came out of Argentina to create a revolution, you're out to create an evolution. Hmm. He came out to create a revolution was Che Guevara, who I had the good fortune of meeting wow. in, Por- in, uh, in Cuba uh, with Fidel Castro. That's amazing. Yes, I actually think a lot about that recently because, um, you know, in the climate space, in the biodiversity space, there's a massive division between what we understand as the North and the South. 
in climate negotiations, that often is what trumps uh, and blocks a lot of the negotiations because the global south says, well, you've been extracting from our natural resources. You've been the one that polluted the most. You're the richest. We are indebted, impoverished, uh, and we have a hard time getting out of it. So you're responsible for climate change. And um, in the view that we can transcend our understanding of wealth by saying, well, but wait a second, the global south is wealthy because it has natural capital and it has um, pristine forests. And actually, those threatened forests in the global south because of extraction are actually even more valuable because, because they're threatened. Protecting them makes a huge change, positive change. So if we used to have money that was backed by gold, uh, what if in the future our money is backed by our healthy forests? Well, that's a great model for global south, where Brazil becomes a very wealthy country because it is protecting the Amazon. Or Ecuador has a, a big part of its national reserves because it keeps the Galapagos pristine. Um, that is something that Latin America is very primed to do. And so if Che Guevara raised a revolution out of um, injustices that uh, he saw in the world, particularly a little bit that north-south, what is in uh, evolution, as you say, are aligned in nature that Latin America can can coordinate itself because we have the benefit that we all most of us speak Spanish or speak Latin um, languages, all have and happen to have certain similar vicissitudes in our economies um, and stewards of very important natural capital with the Andes, the Amazon, Central America. Um, so I, uh, I think a lot about uh, uh, what is a nature-aligned Gavarian evolution look like. Uh, and uh, I, I tinker with the idea of being able to support catalyzing one of those. <laughs> I love your concept of, this, of nature-based currency because I believe that capitalism is one of the major contributing, if not the major contributing factors to causing problems on the planet and adding to this society of dominance and, and, uh, and winner takes all. And uh, I, I, I very much support that. I look forward to uh, submitting myself so I'll get your email and I'll find out more about it. And I know there'll be more discussions of it at Wilbur in the future at our meetings there. I hope so. So thank you so much, Martin Weinstein, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I really enjoyed uh, having you here and what you've had to say. It, it is so important. And I just want to remind our, our listeners, Open Earth. Is it openearth.org yes, or .com? Yes, openearth.org. Go to Google. Go to openearth.org. Sign up for their newsletters get involved. There are things you can do on the micro level. And for some of you, you may be able to join in and do things on the macro level. And, and thank you all, dear listeners, for being part of our program today. I look forward to being with you again for another exciting program. Please go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. You can subscribe, be part of our community. We're out to do good. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs>